Amen. I tell you, all our worship leaders are pretty special. What's one of the things that's so special about that man is no matter how I show up, he just pulls the worship out of me, if that makes sense. And I just thank you for that, brother. Um, Hey, we are officially to the last of the minor prophets. Couple of woos. That's all right. Um, we've been 26 weeks in the Minor Prophets, and we are finally to the book of Malachi. It is the last book of the Old Testament. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. So find your way to Malachi. We're going to start in chapter one. Uh, Malachi is unique for a lot of reasons, but what's most unique about it is after Malachi says his final word, God falls silent for over 400 years. I want us to think a little bit about why that may be. Uh, true. So uh, here's an illustration that might help us get at it. Uh, years ago, I had a buddy who's a new believer. I'm a pastor. I'm like, well, let me help you with that, you know? And so I was meeting with him, kind of talking about spiritual things. At the same time, he also had some life issues. Uh, for instance, he didn't have a job. Um, he didn't have a car, didn't really have a place to live. He was kind of couch surfing at the moment. And so, you know, I'd pick him up, take him places, take him out to eat, you know, stuff like that. And so as we're meeting, I start to think to myself, well, I want to help him with other stuff in his life. Um, I'm a pretty resourceful guy. I'm going to help him find a job. So I was out and about and found a place that was uh, hiring, and I grabbed an application. I was so excited to show it to him. I'm like, hey, look, here's a place you could work, solve a bunch of your problems. Um, and he said, well, that's pretty far. I don't have a car. And I said, well, listen, I can't afford to buy you a car, but if, if it would help, I, I bet I could find you a bike and it's it's close enough like biking distance you could get there and, and back and he's like well I mean it snows in Colorado you can't bike in the snow and I'm like oh that's fair point I will keep looking so I found a few other places and brought them to him and like hey here's a place that could you know you could work at here they're hiring um, and consistently everything that I brought to him there was some reason why it just it just wouldn't work I don't like that type of work. I couldn't do that. You know, just always a reason. Now, I can be pretty slow sometimes, but eventually, after a couple weeks of having my ideas shot down, I began to suspect, I don't think my buddy really wants a job. You know, I was like, "Ah, I don't know that for sure. I don't want to assume that about him, but I'm not sure what's happening because everything is being shot down. And I realized I had this epiphany. I have spent more hours trying to find him a job than he has spent. There's something probably wrong with that. And I started thinking, I think I care about this issue more than he does. What do you do in a situation like that? Y'all are being very respectful this morning. Someone in the first service said, stop. <laughs> That's true. That's what I did. I, like, it's not that you stop caring for the person, but I needed to step back a little bit, right? For his sake and for mine. I, I just needed to let him live his own life. And so I did. And he did. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that where you're working hard for someone and it, they're like, it's like, aren't you working too? <laughs> it's frustrating. Here's a principle that we all need to know in our relationships, but especially if you seek to help others. Take a step back when you find yourself caring about another person's success more than they do. Does that make sense? I think, I'm told it's called a boundary. <laughs> can apply to a lot of situations, but it's rooted in this reality that when you love someone, you can help them in a lot of ways. But one thing you cannot do for them 
is make them care about something they don't. Right? Have you seen that? You can encourage them, you can support them, you can give them tangible help, but you can't talk someone into a desire for change. That's something that has to come from the inside. And I've learned that lesson the hard way a hundred times over. When you find yourself in a situation where you're kind of like trying to argue someone into changing, the best thing to do is to lovingly step back. Now, I bring this up because uh, we're about to read some stuff out of Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, God is going to fall silent. I wonder if that's not part of what is happening in that moment. Malachi, uh, last book of the Old Testament. We don't know a lot about the author. It, uh, his name means messenger, so he might have given him that, as, uh, that name as a title, or that could be his name from birth. We don't know that. Um, it was written in the early 400s BC, so the, the Israelites were in exile. They came back to the Holy Land. They're trying to reestablish the city of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple at this point. The wall is being built. Uh, that's when Malachi writes, things are a little bit more stable for the people of God. And so really, the most notable thing about this book, he doesn't say a lot of new stuff. It's going to be a lot of things like we've heard in other prophets. But the most notable thing is Malachi is the last thing God says to his people for 400 years. Why does he go silent? Why does he do that? I, we don't know for sure, but I wonder if part of it is that principle that I was talking about. God's looking at his people and he's like, listen, I have said all the words right? Like I've said all the words, like nobody in Israel could say, what does God even want with us? I don't even know. What is that? You know, he said it a million times over, right? God had invited people into this dream time and time again, and the people, they're not really listening. They're not really paying attention. They don't seem to want it for themselves. And so maybe this is the moment where God in his wisdom says, okay, I'm not going to do it for you. And he just steps back. God is loving, right? God is full of grace, right? Always. Grace and love are different than enabling, right? We understand the difference there. You know that word enabling? Enabling refers to this dysfunctional way where we try to help another person with an issue, but actually our help winds up perpetuating the issue that they're struggling with. That's enabling. Now, here's the thing. Grace, uh, which is unmerited favor, and enabling uh, can look similar from a certain perspective, but they are deeply different. Let me illustrate using the story of my buddy. Um, I was trying to be gracious. That was my heart, but I'm human, I'm broken, I do it wrong all the time. And I began to conclude that perhaps my constant giving of rides, buying of food, all that sort of stuff that I was doing was becoming part of the reason why my buddy was not figuring out his own life. Because I was doing things for him that he was fully capable of doing for himself. And that's okay in a relationship to do something that someone can do for themselves. But when that becomes a reliable relational pattern where I'm going to do the things for him that he is capable of doing for himself, that's when it drifts into enabling. Here's the difference with grace. Grace is when God does for us things that we cannot do for ourselves. 
So God saves us, right? We can't do that for ourselves. He sent Jesus to save us. God atones for our sins. We cannot do that for ourselves. God redeems us. We cannot do that for ourselves. Uh, He fills us with his Holy Spirit. That is grace. That's not something we can do for ourselves. He speaks to us. He leads us. He invites us into the kingdom, kingdom life. All that stuff is grace for us because we cannot do it for ourselves. But apparently God has pretty healthy boundaries because he never forces us to live the kingdom life. He's not interested in that sort of a relationship. He invites us into it, and then he waits for a response. You look at the Old Testament, that's one way to think about the story of the Old Testament. It is God inviting his people into a certain type of life and waiting for them to respond. He's looking for a response from his people that he never gets. That's why the prophets exist. Now that response, this is important, It's not about earning love with God. It's not about getting God to like you if I respond to him, right? Like he he loves you and he likes you. You can't do anything to change that. But he's interested in a relationship of mutuality. He's interested in a two-way relationship. And so there are times when he says, hey, here's what I'm inviting you into. And he waits for us to step into it. And I think one possible explanation of the silence of God after Malachi Um, And I think this could apply to the silence of God in our lives sometimes when we feel it. Is it's God saying, uh, well, God had said all he had to say, right? In this moment, God had said all he had to say. He wasn't going to force his people to participate in his dream for them. So he's waiting for their response. And he doesn't leave the people. He doesn't forsake the people. But it does seem like he takes a little bit of a step back. He's like, okay. I'm not going to do it for you. It's there if you want it. Ultimately, in the Old Testament, the people never respond, right? So what happens? Jesus comes. He changes everything. He broadens the kingdom of God. So it's no longer just contained within the borders of Israel. But now it's a worldwide kingdom that at any time, any person can respond to the grace of Christ. So you think of this last book of Malachi. I I think of it this way. It's like a parting shot. God's going to say one last thing before he just steps back and says, okay, it's yours to run with. Uh, Malachi is this final invitation to step into God's dream for his people. We're going to jump around a little bit in this book. I want to trace a thread that starts at the beginning and goes to the very end in Malachi, which is fascinating to me. Because you think about this God who's like, I have this amazing dream. Would you respond to it? He's looking for a response. And instead, what he gets, and this has been consistent through the Minor Prophets, is an argument from his people. And it's fascinating how it unfolds. Uh, it, it starts right away and it goes south quick. Let's uh, look at Malachi chapter one, verse one. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. That part was okay, but it's about to go south. Here's where God starts talking to them. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? This is a big part of the content of Malachi. God is going to say something, and the people are going to say, how is that true? You know, and it's not like loving, like he's like, I've loved you. And they're like, oh, how? How did you love us? No, they're like, how did you love us? Show us that you loved us. Prove it to us, is the way the people respond. And that's how they respond throughout this book. Uh, They're basically saying to God, uh, we don't believe it. Demonstrate it. Give us the evidence of it. 
despite their rudeness, God does. He explains himself. He, he talks about how he has preserved this remnant of Israel. He did not preserve the remnant of Esau, the Edomites. They're, they're gone at this point. Uh, but he says, I've preserved you for this moment. I've loved you. And the argument continues. Look at verse 6. This is God talking. He says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how? How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. So God's saying to the people, listen, you're giving me your leftovers. Don't act like you're giving me something. It's the stuff you don't want for yourself that you're giving me. Now, side note, um, it's, it's not the point of the sermon, but this is an important point. The Bible never teaches giving out of duty. Sometimes we get confused about that. Like we're like, we should give because it's our obligation. That's not, in fact, what Scripture teaches. That's what these people were doing. They're like, we have to give God something, so here, take this ugly animal. Um, that's not what Scripture teaches. The Bible actually teaches, especially in the New Testament, it makes this clear. We should never give out of compulsion because giving is not about God, like, needing money. He's like, ooh, do you have, could you spot me something? You know, that's not what giving is about. God has plenty of money. Giving is about our heart, right? It is about forming something in us that resembles Jesus Christ. And so God says consistently, don't give if your heart is not in it. And what Malachi is saying here is your heart is not in it. And the evidence of that is the awful things that you're giving, the leftover stuff, the worn out stuff that you keep giving. So God says, just keep it. Keep your half-hearted sacrifices. I don't want them. The argument continues. Look at chapter 2. Go down to verse 13. God says, another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Here's what's happening. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, I don't think that's a metaphor. I think he's talking about actual marriage. And you can study this on your own. I'm not going to unpack it all. But there's a whole bunch of really unethical marriage practices happening in the day. And what the, the short version is, is that men in the day were using marriage and divorce to further kind of their position in life, both financially and with influence and all that sort of stuff. And they were doing this with no regard for the women involved. And so what God's saying is, hey, the reason I'm not listening to you is because you're not regarding these women, but I regard them. I see these women. Isn't this what Jesus has taught us? Like Jesus says, hey, let me summarize all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we love God according to Jesus? By loving our neighbor as ourself. And there's this idea that we have that it's like, hey, I, you know, I can treat people how I want to treat people, but then I can love God and really work on my relationship with him. And that, like, that's a thing. And God's like, no, 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 that's not a thing. If you want to love me and work on your relationship with me, then it is lived out in how you love the people around you. And that is why you cannot disregard these women 
and then offer sacrifices and think that I'll be like, oh, well, thank you for the wonderful sacrifice. He continues, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So he's saying your values are inverted, and you're, you're like you're elevating and admiring people who are evil. Maybe not evil in the way that we might think, because the context here is injustice. So he's talking about evil meaning mistreating other people to advance your position. Uh, turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. This argument is uh, continuing. It's getting good. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. We heard this last week in Zephan or Zechariah. But you ask, how are we to return to you? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse. Your whole nation because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I love what God points out there. He says, listen, I've always been the same. That's why you're still around. Because I've always been eager to bless you, eager to preserve you. But the people are acting like God is like this cruel taskmaster. How do you act uh, with a cruel boss? You withdraw, you avoid. You certainly don't do your best, right? And God's saying, that's not what I am. That's never been what I am. Like, would you just trust me? It could be so good if you just would trust me and lean into this relationship for what it is. If you just trust me, you'd see. Now, there's one last exchange like this, um, and I think it really reveals the core of the problem that these people have in their heart. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. God says, You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? This is the heart of the people, right? At this point, this is their heart. It is a transactional heart, right? We'll, we'll, we'll do what God wants if we get something out of it. What do we have to gain, though? If we just do this stuff, we can gain nothing. What they're saying is, we would love you and worship you if it was in our benefit. And the irony of that is if you love and worship God because of what you get out of it, you get nothing out of it. If you love and worship God because of God, you get so much out of it, right? And so God's saying to them, listen, because of how you're approaching me, you are robbing yourselves of everything that I have to give to you. Like this beautiful dream that we could create, this amazing thing that we could have together. You are so concerned with what you get that you're winding up getting nothing. Turn over to chapter 4. 
This is like the final word from God. He is about to wrap it up. Here's how he wraps it up. There's a prophecy about Jesus, which you'd expect. There's one about John the Baptist, which you might expect as well. But right in the middle, he says something that really is like his final word to them. And he's like, after this, I'm going to just hold my tongue and be silent and you guys figure it out. But this is the final word. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. And so he's taking them back to that moment that we started with 26 weeks ago from Exodus 19, where God is giving the law to people. And he says, would you just, just remember when I rescued you and I gave you this dream, this dream that we had together that was so beautiful that we could create this place where there's love and mercy and justice at the center of it. And every person is accounted for. And we, we said, yes, let's do that together. And we could walk together into it. Remember that dream. Only he doesn't say dream in that verse, does he? Notice the word he says there, right? Remember what? The law. It would be helpful if we took another look at that word law, because I don't think it means what we think it means. For years, I'll confess, uh, when I would read the Bible and I would come across that word law, uh, like I would just fill in the blank with this definition, is that the law is basically God telling us, stop being bad and start being good. Like that's just how I thought of it. Like that's what the law is. He's like, see that? Stop it. Do this over here. Um, Everything changed when I realized that is not in fact what the Old Testament law is about. That's never been what it's about. The law of God is the first invitation to the vision of God. Like his vision for all humanity of, hey, here's what you were created for. That's what the law is about. It is about his perfect love being played out on a massive scale in a culture, right? It's not just about you being good. It is about his perfect love being played out in a society where he is at the center. It's God saying, here is what you humans were created for. And so all this stuff that comes up again and again in the prophets, this idea of love and justice and compassion and caring for each other, all of that stuff, the stuff that we long for, wouldn't it be great to be in a community where love was at the center? God says, that's what the law is supposed to help you do to guide you into that community. And I know for our eyes, like we're reading it 3,000 years after the fact, and so it looks really weird. We're like, shellfish, what's wrong with those? Um, That's part of the law is don't eat shellfish. But like we're like, how, how does that even connect? But at its center, it's not about all those little do's and don'ts. It is about love and dignity for every human. It's about safety for every human. It's like, let's create that sort of society together. And so I think we could reread the whole story of the Old Testament, not as a story of God's people disobeying and doing bad stuff that they know they shouldn't, although it is that on some level. But I think more than that, it is a story of human futility, where we try on our own, independent of God, to become that which we were created to be, and we just can't. We just can't pull it off, and they fail again and again on their own. This is why Jesus had to come. Jesus, he doesn't just free us from all our bad decisions and our sins. He does that, but he empowers us to step into something new, which is the most important thing about what he ushered in. He frees us from the disobedience, but he empowers us to step into the dream of God, this dream that the people of God could never manage to step into on their own. And so in one sense, the final word of the Old Testament is God saying to the people, would you just remember this dream? 
This dream that is at the bottom of the longing in your heart. That despite the brokenness that you've experienced and the wounds that make you do awful stuff to one another, but do you remember like what it could be about, that dream? I know you don't want it for yourself right now, but could you just remember that picture that I gave you? And after he says that, he steps back and lets him figure it out. Now, the next word that people hear out of the mouth of God comes from the mouth of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says as his first sermon in his public ministry? It's out of Matthew 4 where Jesus says, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And so the last word is, would you remember this dream? And the next word is Jesus saying, hey, let's turn from all the stuff we're doing and step into this thing for the first time we are empowered to step into because of what I am about to do on the cross and rise from the dead. And Jesus says, it's available to you in a way that it has never been available to you before is the next word out of God's mouth. Whew. There's some powerful stuff there. Let me make an observation um, about this final word in the Old Testament that I think would be helpful for our journey because I think this is, this is one of the challenges. Next week we'll come back and there's some really cool stuff. We'll tie this all together. Um, but uh, I, I think we need to pause here for a second because there's something that bothers me deeply about this passage. I, uh, like, uh, as I was studying it, I just viscerally, I was like bothered by the arguing. Like I wanted to be like, hey, it's God, be cool. Like stop, <laughs> stop snapping back at him like that. Um, I just wanted them to listen. Like I think the fact that they don't and the way that they argue and they're like, how is that a thing? I, I think it highlights what God is genuinely up against whenever he tries to talk to us about anything, right? Here's just an observation and we need to start here. Whenever God speaks, there is always an element of surprise. Now, what I don't mean is that he startles us, although sometimes. Um, what I do mean is that what he says will often not be lined up with our expectations about what he should say. This is what the people in Malachi are struggling with. God shows up and he says, hey, here's a thing. And they're like, what? No, that? And they're, they act all surprised by it. We see this again in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus shows up and there's these teachers of the law and they're like, we've studied the Old Testament. We are sure when the Messiah shows up, he's gonna say these sorts of things. And Jesus shows up and he says different things. And they're like, well, he's not the Messiah because he's not saying all the things that we've concluded in our mind that if God was here, he would say. When in fact, the opposite is true, isn't it? If Almighty God is going to show up and say something, wouldn't you expect it to be something that you didn't expect? Like, isn't that the expectation? And doesn't that affirm that in fact Jesus is God, that he showed up, and not a human on earth expected him to say the things that he did? It's like, well, they, yeah, that's probably the experience of encountering God. It's a little unexpected. There's some surprise. In fact, I would say this. If you are regularly hearing from God things like, man, you're so right, <laughs> nailed it. Man, your opinions are spot on. You should get online. Is there a way to spread the word about all those things you're thinking? Nailed it. Keep on keeping on. If that's how God talks to you, you might consider you're not hearing God's voice, someone else's voice. When God wants to say something to us, there's an element of surprise. And when he wants to bring to us something that we are not expecting, what we see in Malachi and what we have to humbly admit is true of our hearts is he has a lot to overcome. 
Like we as humans, we can be incredibly defensive, incredibly self-justifying, deeply argumentative with him, just like these people in Malachi. Have you ever heard of this concept out of psychology? Fundamental attribution error. You familiar with that? The idea of this is really simple. Uh, it's for others, we attribute their bad behavior to their character. So if you do something wrong, I'm like, oh, you're a bad person. But for ourselves, we attribute our bad behavior to our circumstances. So if I do something wrong, I'm like, well, look at what I had to deal with. The classic example of this is the grocery store. If you see a parent yelling at their kid in a grocery store, you're like, oh, what a horrible parent. Um, gosh, it's hard to be a kid. I feel sorry for those poor kids. If you happen to yell at your kid in the grocery store, I've been there. I'm like, I've told you a million times. Oh my gosh, my kids are the worst. Why does it? It's just hard being a parent. I feel sorry for myself. That's fundamental attribution error, right? We're attributing negative character to someone who makes a mistake, but to ourselves, when we make a mistake, we're like, well, I couldn't help it, right? That is deep in all of us as humans. I suspect it makes the Holy Spirit's job very difficult, right? Because if the Holy Spirit wants to bring something to us, uh, you know, fundamental attribution error basically describes this, that we are all lawyers for ourselves all the time. And so God wants to bring something to us and we're like, prove it, Lord, what's your evidence? Let me give you my evidence. And I think we can become so in, invested in explaining and defending ourselves and I suspect that sometimes when we do, God does what he does at the end of Malachi. And he just steps back and he says, okay, I'll wait. Let me know when you're ready. But I'm not going to argue with you about it. Um, is that frightening to you? That is frightening to me. I like, there's something about that. Like the 400 years of silence that follows this argument between God and his people is deeply unsettling to me because I think it highlights how we can tune God out in such a way that he just is like, okay, I'll leave you to it. Enjoy. I'm not going to care about it more than you do. And it makes me curious in my life. Are there things God has tried to say to me that I'm not hearing simply because God doesn't really want to argue with my defensiveness. Have you ever wondered about that question? Like not for me, like surely there are. I'm sure you're all wondering that for me, but I mean for you, have you ever wondered, is there stuff God's saying to you that like you've just tuned him out for so long? He's like, okay. It's probably a healthy thing to ponder. Um, let me hit us with a big life lesson. I think this is a takeaway uh, that begins to give some teeth to, to what I'm talking about. Soft-hearted people are more likely to hear from God. Like that's probably a, a clear takeaway from the minor prophets, right? Soft-hearted people are more likely to hear from God. The humble hear from God all the time, right? Hard-hearted, defensive people constantly lawyering for themselves. They hear from God probably a lot less than soft-hearted people. Now, let me define soft-heartedness. Soft-heartedness is not the desire to hear from God. Like every human has that. If you go up to any human and like, hey, there's a real God who wants to talk to you. Do you want to hear what he has to say? We'd all be like, yes, until he says it. So it's not the desire to hear from God. Soft-heartedness is a willingness to let God say anything to you, even if it surprises you. 
even if it violates your expectations, even if it doesn't fit in what you've been thinking up to that point. It's a willingness to let God speak to you, both the good things that sometimes we block out, like God saying to us, you are my beloved, that'll never change. And sometimes we're like, yeah, no, I gotta work hard to earn your love. Um, It's letting that sort of stuff in, but it's also letting the hard things in, where God's like, "I, I want you to change there, not because I'm mad at your disobedience, but because there's something better for you than what you're doing right now, and I want you to step into that. It's letting both of those things in. Let me give you a picture that might hammer this home. Um, this is our soundboard. I think sometimes we mistakenly think God is like a soundboard. And there's all these channels of all the things God wants to say to us. And some of them were like, great, I'd love to hear that from you, God. Tell me your plan for my life. Awesome. But then there's some things that were like, I just, I want to turn that one down a little bit because I don't really want to hear that. I don't think I have that issue. I don't think that's worth saying. Here's what I want to say to us. We can't selectively tune out God. God is not like this, right? We can't selectively tune him out. That's what the minor prophets are teaching. When we tune God's voice out in one area, like the minor prophets saying to the people, hey, stop this injustice against the disenfranchised and powerless, right? And they're like, what injustice? And they kept tuning God's voice out in that one area then we actually wind up not hearing him in any area. 400 years of silence, right? God is not like a soundboard. The silence of God in our life might be similar to the silence of God at the end of Malachi, that his silence is more related to us tuning him out in an area than it is to him choosing not to speak. And so the question when it comes to soft-heartedness maybe is simply this. Is there an area where we're responding like these people in Malachi? where it's our self-justification, our defensiveness, that's how we're interacting. And if so, I think we just need to realize that we might be turning down his voice across the board. Can I ask you to think about something and actually pray about something? In fact, if, if, if you're willing, maybe close your eyes, bow your head for a second. Is there a thing in your life where God doesn't have permission to speak to you? Is there an area that you've given him uh, no willingness to listen, no soft-heartedness? Would you just ask him right now, would you say, God, is there something in my life where I have taken away your permission to speak to me? And can I promise you this? If he answers that question, it will be a surprise to you. And your initial reaction will be, what? How? How? And that's when you see yourself in the pages of Scripture and say, wait, 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 I'll hear you out, Lord. Would you just ask him that question right now? Is there an area where I've turned you down? And while you're asking him, can I ask you to also do what Malachi is encouraging you? Remember the law. And by that, I don't mean remember God wants you to stop disobeying and start obeying. No, I mean, would you remember this God whose dream for you has always been abundant flourishing? That's all he's ever wanted for you is to restore you to humanity by his definition of the word. Remember this God that's just excited that you exist, that's eager to do something with you. It's thought about what is the best possible life you could have and invites you into it, invites you into something extraordinary centered on his love. That is the God who's trying to speak to you. Would you be open to that God who fights for your flourishing, speaking into that place 
that you've blocked him out of? Could we turn down our defensiveness and self-justification and soften our hearts? Lord, would you reveal to us those areas where we've tried to tune you out? Where we've responded with defensive questions? Where we've told you you gotta prove it? Would you give us the humility and the grace to tell us one more time? Would you soften our hearts so we can receive it, Lord? God, we know you don't speak to us because you're mad. You speak to us because you want something great for us. Help us to see that vision that you have for our lives. Soften our hearts, Lord.